Hi, hello, what is up? And welcome back to this week's episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, a true crime and black history podcast where we talk about things from a decolonial critical perspective, but above all else, without all of the unnecessary copaganda, because why would we waste our time with that? This week's episode is going to be focused on the Young Street protest in Toronto of 1992. And obviously that would make it Black History Week. Now, before we get into the episode, I just want to say if you've been enjoying the podcast and all the little, you know, the little episodes, all the little stuff that I've been putting out, I would really appreciate you rating it. And that just helps a lot. And it lets me know feedback and kind of where I'm at with things and if it's well received if it's not really well received so i would appreciate that and then also if you have the means to and you'd like to support the work that's being done here further i do have a patreon and all patrons get early access and then with different tiers come different privileges and i would love to have you over there you know what i mean it would be a good time so yeah i'd appreciate that and the link can be found in the description but let's get into it so now we're going to kind of transition back to toronto ontario um, and we're going to talk about the BADC, which is the Black Action Defense Committee. So these group of activists, organizers, whatever you want to call them, these group of black people, uh, absolutely impeccable. You know, this collective was formed in 1988 in response to the murder of Lester Donaldson, Wade Lawson, Albert Johnson and Buddy Evans. So the group was founded by. Um, Dudley Laws, Charles Roach, Sharona Hall, and Lennox Farrell. So I'm just going to give a little bit of information about each of them. Not too much, but, you know, just something. So Dudley emigrated to Toronto, Canada in 1956, where he worked as a welder and taxi driver. He had organized consistently throughout his life prior to his move to so-called Canada. Uh, So he was very active in All the communities, wherever he was at, he always had a desire to kind of make things better for Black people specifically. Um, And he unfortunately passed away on March 24th, 2011, after a long battle with cancer and kidney disease. Now, Charles Roach was born in Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm a Trini girl, so big up to that. Uh, But the year he moved to Toronto is unknown, Uh, but he actually lived in the city for over 50 years, so majority of his life was spent in Toronto. And uh, he was actually an associate at a law office for a number of years. Uh, And this is like kind of a tangent, but also it has to do with him. So one thing, like when I was doing just brief research about him, I saw that uh, in order to gain Canadian citizenship or like gain citizenship at all, if you weren't born in so-called Canada, you have to pledge allegiance to the queen, which is like, ew. That's so gross. Like, why why would I want to pledge allegiance to the biggest colonizer of the colonizers? Like, I don't want to do that, you know? Um, And he refused to do so because he said it was unlawful. So he didn't. And in turn, they did not give him Canadian citizenship. But I was thinking about it. And it was like, if I wasn't born here, like, would I pledge allegiance to the queen? Like, probably not. Like, I probably would have made the same decision he did. So Charles, though, unfortunately passed away at age 79 after battling brain cancer. So on to Sharona Hall, who is an absolutely amazing woman, I must say. Like, she cared very much for and was extremely active in the African community in Toronto. And she was actively a part of advocating on behalf of 
BADC, as well as varying labor battles, women's activist associations, as well as within the LGBTQIA communities. So love her. She was really just here for everybody. She wanted everybody to have the best possible life and was willing to do anything to try to make sure that could happen for as many people as she could. So she actually paid special attention to youth Uh, within all of her organizing and she was actually a community youth advocate with the Toronto Housing Authority. Now unfortunately she passed away in 2006 at age 59. Uh, Her cause of death is kind of unknown but it's just it says that she passed away in her sleep. So now on to the final member, or the final founding member, I should say, Lennox Farrell. So Lennox was an educator, writer, publisher, and community organizer. Um, He was a part of or involved in a bunch of community orgs aside from BADC, such as the Ontario Anti-Racism Committee and the Caribbean Cultural Committee for Carabana in 2005, as well as the North York Black Education Committee. So he also was very passionate about helping black youth. So this group has done a lot of uh, inspiring things. They are thought to be primarily responsible for the creation of Ontario's SIU, which is their special investigations unit, which is comparable to Manitoba's IIU. Uh, They were definitely at the forefront of the movement at this time, advocating for an end to police investigating police. Uh, They wanted some sort of accountability process that was outside of the police. So we now know and understand that there is really no way to hold police accountable, right? Like they're an actor, they're actors of the state. And so the state will always protect them whether intentionally or unintentionally, simply just because that's the way that it is. That's the way that the system was set up. But they were definitely ahead of the curve on this since Manitoba's IIU was only established in the 2000s after the death of Crystal Tamman. So the SIU was the first of its kind in Canada, and it was thought to be like a really good thing at the time, but unfortunately turned out not to be. Um, If you're interested in hearing more about the Ontario SIU, I can do an episode on it just like I did with the Manitoban IIU, but uh, you can just, there'll be like a poll if you're on Spotify and listening on Spotify, there's a little poll and you can just let me know if that's something you're interested in. So uh, back to the group though, this group also created the Freedom Cipher, and the purpose of this group was to give Black youth employable opportunities and skills required for them to succeed in a system that was set up for them to fail. And through this, they were also providing educational opportunities. It's like they were, I don't want to, I don't know how accurate this is, but it's giving like Canadian Black Panther vibes almost with this group. Um, Definitely not as radical as the Black Panthers, but they definitely were ahead of of the movement uh, in Canada for sure. So after the attack on Rodney um, and the verdict came out in on April 29th of 1992, BADC decided to host a protest in solidarity with Black American kin, but also to express outrage regarding the recent murders of Black men at the hands of the Toronto police. So they started planning like immediately So on the 29th, after this happened, um, but while planning for this protest, a Toronto police officer actually shot and murdered another young black man named Raymond Constantine Lawrence. And so the protest was to gather in his honor as well. 
So now we're going to just talk about Raymond, Constantine Lawrence, and kind of that situation, what happened there. So unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of information about him out there, and the information that was out there was just unnecessarily harsh. Um, it was unproven, and it just had a lot to do with further criminalizing him, despite the fact that he is now dead, you know? So it was just, it was clear that this was just propaganda put out there to make the shooting seem justified when there's literally no justified reason for this whatsoever. But Raymond was born and raised in Jamaica before coming to Canada in July of 1990 to work as a casual laborer at 20 years old. A lot of places felt it was necessary to mention the fact that he was here quote-unquote illegally, um, and I just thought this was ridiculous because if we're being real, like we live on stolen land. We all live on stolen land. That's what so-called Canada is. So how is it possible to be illegal on land that was illegally and unethically taken, right? Like make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. So to me, that wasn't necessary, but I just also wanted to mention that because I feel like that's something that shouldn't just be glossed over, you know? So on May 2nd of 1992, two days after the verdict came in with the initial Rodney King trial, it was in the nighttime and there was a white cop named Constable Robert Rice who was chasing Raymond through alleys and backyards in the west end of Toronto. Um, how or why the chase started is not very clear. There was not a lot of information out there about that and that's really what I was interested in, but of course not out there. So Robert was in plain clothes and he wasn't in uniform. So it's unclear if he ever identified himself at any point. Uh, Rice says that he believed that Raymond was a crack dealer, which is like, um, okay, like question mark, question mark, question mark. How did, so how did that though lead to a chase? And how did that then lead to his death? Like just because some, you think someone's a crack dealer. Like there's so many gaps in the story that it just doesn't make sense. There's a lot of question marks and this just shows that like, because this is the information that the SIU put out there. So it just shows, you know, like they don't care about putting out what actually happened. They're just going to do whatever it takes to protect themselves. So at 22 years old, the very, very young age, that's literally the age that I am right now, uh, Raymond was shot twice in the chest while being very close to the gun. So it had no other way to end but with his his eventual death, you know? So Robert Rice, he says that he shouted and fired a warning shot before shooting him twice in the chest. But to me, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. That's just what the SIU said. So giving major side eye and just reminding you like, the SIU is not honest. They're not honest. They just want to protect their own. So at the time of uh, Raymond's death, right, the BADC, they were already planning the protest, you know, and they were wrapping up the planning process. But after hearing about this, right, news of Raymond's death spread like wildfire amongst the Black Toronto community, which was about 250,000 strong at that time. So everyone in the Black community was obviously pissed and rightfully so. Like, boo, tomatoes, tomatoes, tomatoes to this crusty officer who decided to be the judge, jury, and executioner for this young man whose life was literally just beginning. Raymond was also the 14th black person to be shot by um, the Toronto police since 1978 and the fourth person to die as a result of the shooting.
Okay, so now we're going to get into talking about the actual protests themselves and kind of what happened, what went down. Um, So on May 4th of 1992, at around 4 p.m., BADC, you know, they put out their calls. They told everybody, come on down. We're going to protest outside of the U.S. consulate where there was a crowd of about a thousand people who formed. Now, after the initial gathering at the consulate, they marched to Young and Bloor where a 45-minute sit-in was to occur. They were going to intentionally block traffic and take up space in the busiest intersection of the city, right? They were going to make their presence known. They were going to make their outrage known and make it very clear, like, we're not down with this and this needs to stop. So at about 4.30 p.m., um, half a dozen white guys showed up with signs that were antagonistic in nature, I feel like is the best way to kind of put it. So their signs read things like L.A. Burns, T.O. Next, um, and we denounce the racist murder of whites, which is like, we're talking about black people here. So if you're going to come here with signs about the racist murdering of white people, like you're asking for a fight, you know what I mean? Like you're asking to get your butt beat the hell up. So other protesters actually saw this and destroyed their signs and the people who brought them were actually arrested. So it's very clear, like they were just trying to incite something. Um, But because, you know, black protesters saw it and destroyed it, then the police were forced to do something. I really think that if everyone had just ignored them, like the police wouldn't have done anything. So, you know, fast forward a little bit at about uh, 6.45 p.m., the protesters approached the doors of the old city hall courthouse where about 30 people left the group um, and shattered the glass doors and then returned. Then all of a sudden, um, there was just an onset of young white folks who decided to swarm in and then pandemonium set in, right? Like this is when all the chaos kind of really popped off. Everything was fine and peaceful when it was just the black folks who were gathering, you know what I mean, going there for a purpose, listening to the instructions of the organizers as you do when you go to protests. Um, The issues only really started when the young white men specifically started to show up, a lot of whom were actually skinheads just looking to further the racial divide and create more issues for all involved, right? Like they just wanted to go down there and start some mess. They wanted a reason to kind of break shit and burn things to the ground. So uh, they began smashing store windows, punching random people in the streets, um, and they were looting everything they could, food, clothes, home goods, and everything in between. Um, Black people were witnessed trying to stop them, but it was unfortunately to no avail. Like one person actually at the time that all of this started to happen, tried to get the crowd to disperse and said like, let's go home. Let's not have any black blood shed tonight because that would be... I would say counterproductive to what the organizers were trying to do. So at Bay Street, you know, when they were heading to City Hall initially, the protesters were expecting to speak with politicians um, and instead they were met with a line of police. So then as a result, there was a standoff between police and protesters um, and the protesters were mocking and taunting the police. And this was like everybody was doing this, not just the white people. Um, So some were throwing rocks, bricks, and bottles. Um, Near Bloor Street, a pile of bricks were found, and they were used to smash windows of stores nearby. And 
like this to me is very sketchy. Like where the hell did you get rocks and bricks and bottles? You know what I mean? They're not just going to casually be around. Like, I don't know whoever just sees a bunch of bricks just laying there on the corner. You know, this reminds me of how in 2020, these items were strategically placed by police and actors of the state so that it could look bad upon the movement and the organizers. You know, it would look like it was their doing when in reality it wasn't. So at this point, like the police, yeah, they knew that they were clearly outnumbered and they knew that they would only escalate things if they made any moves. So they were actually ordered to not do anything. So, which is like, yeah, obviously, you know, if the police attack people at a protest against police, there's going to be huge problems. So then chunks of concrete, rocks, cans, and even horse poop were thrown at police and at City Hall. Hot dog carts were turned over, cars were broken into, stores were broken into, and glass was all over the street. Um, a group of six white young men actually tried to steal shotguns from a sporting goods store, and they were held off by other protesters, which is like, thank God. Can you imagine if they got guns? You know what I mean? Like, it just, this could have went terribly. But this is also just goes to show like this is how community keeps community safe, because even though the police were there and they probably saw this happening, they're just like, oh, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to do anything. But shout out to those protesters who intervened and handled it, you know. But then this same group of white boys, they went and attacked a middle aged white man. They then proceeded to attack a Globe and Mail reporter. And then they went and got into fist fights with other protesters. So they were just literal shit disturbers. By the time the police kind of got their stuff together and decided that they wanted to do something, the white people uh, had been destroying things for about an hour and a half. So at about 10 p.m., which is like hours, hours after this started, you know, a line of police formed along uh, St. Mary's Street and Bay Street, and they blocked the crowd as they headed down Bay Street. So there were a series of minor clashes between police and protesters before they headed back to Bloor uh, with the police right behind them, right? Like hot on their trails. So at some point, um, I couldn't really figure out when, but someone threw a Molotov cocktail into the crowd. Who did it is unknown. Um, and luckily no one was seriously injured by it because that could have went terribly. So at this point, um, organizers spoke with police and negotiated that they would, the police, right? They would reopen the subways why or when they got closed in the first place was very unclear, uh, but they were going to reopen them so that people could leave. So after this, uh, the crowd shrunk down to about 300 people and they were congregated in a parking lot. So it's unclear if this was primarily white or black people at this point, but I'm assuming primarily black because of what they did next. The police charged the remaining crowd swinging, okay, on horses, off horses, swinging with their clubs. Um, they used billy clubs, and I had to Google, this is just like, I don't know why my brain does this, but I had to Google why it has this name, because to me that's such a weird name. It made me think of like a billy goat, but it's basically just slang for burglar's crowbar um, that now ironically the police use on a regular basis. So the acting deputy police chief, Peter Scott, at the time said that he had to make a choice between protecting property and protecting lives. 
He said, quote, did I want property damage or did I want bodies in the morgue? I chose the former, end quote. He said, uh, like, this was a decision that he was heavily criticized for because we all know that black lives aren't as valuable as property uh, by this, like, they're not held as valuable by the state or actors of said state. So he was really heavily criticized for this decision. But also, this makes it seem like the police didn't harm any black people in the process of this, and that's not the case at all. Like, they still did. I want to make that super, super clear. Right? Like, at some point throughout the night, it's unclear when exactly, but police blocked protesters into Nathan Phillips Square with their horses. And this was something that was intentionally left out of reports. Um, and it was also intentionally left out that police on horses were charging at protesters of all ages, screaming and being enraged, you know, like screaming and being mad, and while swinging at them with these billy clubs. So it's not like they were just, they made it seem like, oh, we're just standing by, we're just trying to keep the peace. No, that's not what they were doing. They were letting the white people get away with everything and then attacking the black people. So BADC made it very clear that they had absolutely nothing to do with the turn of events, right? Like this is not what they wanted. This is not how they envisioned things happening. Um, Dudley Laws said that people have been very angry for a long time as it pertains to governments and actions in countering racism, especially amongst police officers. He said that people were frustrated and upset and like, what do you expect when people are frustrated and upset and no one is listening to them, you know? Ed Clark said that some nuts and the predominantly white youths who stormed in were responsible for stirring things up. And this is definitely valid. Like in my own experience, like when I was a part of planning the Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg rally, um, it was primarily white young people who were online talking about how they wanted things to turn violent and they were willing to initiate violence if they felt called to do so, even though that went directly against the organizers' directions. Toronto police said that after this incident, they realized that the rules of the game have now changed and that they realize this type of demonstration can quickly turn to violence, so they have to be better prepared. It's wild to me, absolutely wild, how every single time there's some sort of violence that goes on at these rallies or at these protests. Um, and most of the time it's carried out by white people who have nothing to do with the actual movement itself. Like, the police will use that as an excuse to be harsher and to carry out more violence against black people, black communities, and black protesters. So when all of this was said and done, uh, 75 people were charged, over 105 businesses were damaged, and over $100,000 worth of property damage was done, which is like, who cares? You know what I mean? It's made up money, but there were 37 officers, three horses that were injured, and over 100 storefronts were damaged. But one of the protesters summed up my thoughts on this like very, very well. And they said that all of the broken windows can be replaced with insurance money, but the black people who were killed cannot be replaced. So BADC actually planned another protest to happen on May 7th, and it was to happen in front of the Ontario Attorney General's office but they did move it to Queen's Park to avoid another outburst from anybody, but specifically any white people who showed up wanting to cause unnecessary issues that they felt were counterproductive to their movement. Now, there were some incidents uh, between the days that passed between the first protest 
and the second, but everything was mostly under control by organizers. Um, I'm assuming they just kind of learned what to do differently as you do, right? You learn from experience and you keep it moving. Um, another incident did happen on May 6th, but there's little information about that. Like literally all that there is, is that it happened. That's all the information I could find. Um, so I'm assuming that it, whatever happened was way less intense than what happened on the 5th for there to be like no information out there about it. There is a documentary out there talking about the protest from a, the black perspective. And I would definitely recommend you watch it if you're interested, want to know more and want to see exclusive footage of the protest. Um, it's called It Takes a Riot and the link to watch will be in the description. So Ontario Premier at the time, Bob Ray, uh, after all of this happened, called for reforms in the education and justice system. Now, what exactly he meant by this? Not really sure because this statement in itself is so vague um, and it just sounds like very typical political talk that we hear even up to this day and it's very frustrating. Like say exactly what you mean. Don't just use buzzwords. You know what I mean? Like there needs to be reform in education and justice system. Okay, so what reforms? What does that look like? And how are you going to make sure that happens? Like, ugh, tomatoes. But the protest actually like the forced public and private conversations about race and racial issues to come to the forefront, whether people wanted them to or not. Um, policy reports were put out and funding for social programs came forward as a result. So the causes of the protests were actually investigated by former UN ambassador and leader of Ontario NDP, Stephen Lewis. And he found that while the LAPD verdict, um, and the shooting of Raymond acted as a catalyst for what went down that night. So just kind of like it sped up the process. But the root causes of black unrest were simmering frustrations over, quote, perceived police mistreatment, uh, discrimination in employment and housing and a school system that was dominated by Eurocentric curricula. So he came to this conclusion after carrying out broad consultations with racialized communities in Ontario but with special care and attention to the black community. Uh, and he had 30 days to report his findings. I just felt like his statement needed to be unpacked further. You know what I mean? Like the unrest that they're ref that he was referring to in this report, uh, like the violence that kind of went down at these protests, it wasn't led by black people like at all. Now, this isn't to say that black people weren't a part of the violence or, you know what I mean, they didn't endorse it because I'm sure a lot of people were down for it. But it's just it wasn't it wasn't led by the black people who organized the protest in the first place. You know, it wasn't what they wanted. But the fact that in his report, he called it perceived treatment like mistreatment, that personally would have been enough to make me want to riot for real, you know, like. If they really wanted to riot and really cause a lot of damage, they could have. But that's not what they went there with the intention of doing. So I feel like this was a lot more mild than it could have been. But as a result of this, uh, the report, a million dollars was given to the Jobs Ontario Youth Employment Placement Fund. Um, and the Fresh Arts Program received funding as a result. And actually was able to nurture artists such as Cardinal Official, Trey Anthony, Jolly Black, Blue Sound Crew, and more. 
the African-Canadian Legal Clinic was also formed as a result. Um, and on, and now we're just going to jump back a little bit to like what happened post LA riot. You know what I mean? Like what progress did they see as a result? So on April 17th of 1993, Kuhn and Powell were convicted by a jury for violating Rodney King's rights by their unreasonable use of force. So on August 4th of that same year, 1993, Kuhn and Powell were sentenced to two and a half years in prison, and Rodney actually was able to receive $3.8 million um, after winning a civil suit against the LAPD for his assault. So unfortunately, on June 17th of 2012, Rodney King was found dead um, in his pool, in his backyard, and they the report his autopsy report says that he died of an accidental drowning and he was found with a lot of different things in his system at the time including alcohol cocaine marijuana and pcp and a lot of people have speculated that his drug use um so many years after this happened was as a result of trauma and him trying to self-medicate and self-cope because of everything he also had chronic pain as a result, but also just think about the mental trauma and the mental turmoil that can come from having to live, you know what I mean, in a city where such a thing happened to you and it was so public. So yeah, that was really unfortunate. And the man who, George Holiday, who actually recorded the video, died in 2021 himself. So just unfortunate all around but we have now come to the part of the episode where we just kind of debrief we chat a little bit and i give you kind of my final thoughts now my first initial thought is violence works I, there's really no other way to say it to be a hundred percent honest but the only way to progress as a marginalized community um, who holds significantly less social political and economic power um, and takes up less space you know what i mean is to get violent the only way the state is really scared is when they realize that they don't have control anymore and the only way to show them that they lack control is to get violent to get rowdy now i'm not saying you know, go out there and just start randomly burning stuff down. What I am saying is that when organized correctly, when done properly, it is effective. It is extremely effective. And that is clear because of all of the changes that happened in Ontario as a result, but also all of the changes that happened in LA as a result. You know what I mean? After the riots, they went and found a way to charge two of the officers again. And then Rodney got his settlement. And in Toronto, there were all these different funds that were set up, all these different things that happened. So... Violence is really effective and it's very hard to have a peaceful, nonviolent movement um, and make progress because it's so easy to ignore when people are being peaceful, when people are being docile, when they're being politically correct, you know what I mean? All of those things. But it's very, very difficult to ignore when people are literally going down there and burning shit to the ground, right? We saw that in Minneapolis, you know, saw how quickly that worked. And I'm not, this is not to say that peaceful protests are bad and violent protests are bad or that one is better than the other. I think that they both have their times and their places. But if you're trying to get things done quickly, violence is the way to do it like but also 
I say this, but while being mindful of like the violence that marginalized communities can carry out to property is not the same violence that the state carries out against the people, if that makes sense. So it's never going to be equal. Um, and the state violence is never justified, whereas the citizen civilian violence always justified, always, especially when it comes to things like this, like police brutality, um, the murders of innocent black people, so on and so forth. I think that if the Toronto protests, you know, the Young Street protests had gone off peacefully as the organizers had initially planned, uh, there would have been little to no progress, you know, but because it happened, uh, it forced people to pay attention. It forced people to stop and think and question. So if any you hear anyone out there saying that violence is bad and you know what I mean, it's not effective for a movement, you should call them out immediately because that is not true. That is not true. Um, and while I was a part of like organizing peaceful protests, that was just what we felt called to do at the time. Um, but ultimately, change has been really slow as a result. And I reflect on that a lot. And I'm not saying that we should have got violent, you know what I mean? But I am saying that it's possible that if it happened, progress would have happened a lot sooner because little to no progress is happening currently. So just something to think about. I also think it's very telling that... In Ontario, the people who initially started the violence was not the black people. It was the white people, which makes me question, like, where did you come from? Like, who sent you type thing? You know what I mean? It's like you're coming in to inf infiltrate a movement, but who sent you? Where did you come from? And are you the ones who planted the bricks there? Did the police plant the bricks there? Did the police tell you to pull up? Because we know that the police and white supremacists, they're all buddy-buddy besties. You know what I mean? Because they're the same thing white supremacist, police officer, interchangeable. So it's like, that was just something that popped into my head. It was, it just seemed very sus, very, very sus. Also the fact that like, I don't know how else to say this, but all of the independent bodies across Canada, so-called Canada, which are responsible for investigating the police, they're all terrible all terrible but ultimately that comes down to the fact that like no one has control over the police and you can try to create these external bodies to control hold accountable all of those things but at the end of the day it doesn't work and it will never effectively work and even when people are charged by these independent bodies like they receive significantly less sentences significantly harsh like less harsh punishments than their non-police counterparts especially those who are black or indigenous so it's just like all of them need to go the police the different investigative units that are supposedly independent but aren't really independent they need to go they don't do anything they just cause further harm and traumatize people further it's really frustrating uh, when trying to look into the deaths of black people like who have been murdered at the hands of the police the fact that there's little to no information about them only things that criminalize them further just goes to show you like what those investigative units really do just protect their own and try to paint black people in as negative of a light as possible to make the police officers actions seem justified the whole situation with raymond it doesn't make any sense the story that they put out there the version of events that they put out there doesn't make any sense and i guarantee it didn't go down that way the other thing i just felt was super important when talking about this case was to not refer to it as a riot like 
simply because a recent trend that I've noticed, and this maybe not even be recent because this happened literally in 1992, right? Like before I was born, but I guess a more recent trend is that when black people go out there and protest and things get violent, then it's a riot. But when white people go out there and get violent, it's just a protest. Like, no, this is what we're not doing. We are not going to use terminology to further criminalize black people for doing the same thing that the white people get to go out there and do all of the time. Like, that's what we're not doing. So I think it's really important when talking about this to not refer to it as a riot, but to refer to it as a protest, because that's really what it was. And that's what black people intended it to be. Whereas L.A., it's the L.A. riots because it was intentionally like they were intentionally rioting. Like, that's what they went out there for. Um but even then, I don't think that that terminology is correct. That's just the most common term. So that's what I used. But definitely, I think when talking about the Young Street protest, it's important to call it a protest. So you stay true to the essence of what it was rather than further criminalizing people for going out there and doing their best to get justice for Black people who are too often murdered and brutalized at the hands of police. But that is all for this week's episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we talked about the Young Street protests of 1992 and everything surrounding it. I thank you so much for being here. I thank you so much for tuning in. And I better see you back next week where we get into a very, very long episode about Peter Nygaard. It's true crime week and I've been researching that case for a hot minute and it's a hot mess. But you better be there because it's honestly the most in-depth I've gotten to go into a case because there's so much information out there. And it's like a very confusing web, but very intriguing. Um, And yeah, I just I think it'll be interesting and I think you'd enjoy it. So yes, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for being here and I'll see you next week.